0: Good morning everybody. We are jam-packed in here today, aren't we? Wow, this is awesome. Hey, welcome to New Life. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time with us, man, we're glad you're here. Come back, do it with us again. I'd like to welcome all of our Chiefs fans with us here today. That's right. Many of you have asked me, um, Joe, what were you thinking the last two minutes of the game? And I said, well, I think my heart jumped into AFib. I'm I'm not really sure. Uh, And if you're not a Chiefs fan, we welcome you here today too. Just don't eat our donuts. That's all I have to say. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm glad all of you are here. Hey, open your Bibles to Genesis 25, please. Genesis 25. That's where we're going to be today. And and we left off last week. If you were here, we, we saw what was uh, probably the hardest test that anybody ever got put under. Abraham was told by God that you need to go sacrifice your son, Isaac. And Abraham's faith did not falter, did it? He was gonna do it. And then what, we know what happened. God stopped him at the last minute and said, and he said, now I know that you have not even withheld from me your one and only son. He provided a substitute sacrifice. And boy, there was all kinds of lessons. And I, I told you, I needed four weeks to preach through that one chapter of the Bible. So we're not gonna take four weeks to do it. But I hope that you'll be spending time with that chapter, reading it. There's just a lot, a lot there. And let me take this moment too again to strongly encourage you to be reading the book of Genesis. When we started this series um, last fall, I I strongly encourage you guys to read the book of Genesis, and and many of you did it. Let me encourage you to do it again. Read through it again. Read the parts of the Bible that that are gonna be surrounding each week's message. And and because, like I said, this is a big book of the Bible, and we're not covering every single detail. So if you are just simply reading the book of Genesis on your own during this series, uh, you're gonna be really well-informed and and up to speed. And a lot of these dots are gonna gonna get connected a little bit better. But as you know, as you keep reading from where we left off last week, the next thing we learn is what Sarah, Abraham's wife, passes away. She dies at the age of 127. Just to give you a marker of kind of where we are in time, that would make her son Isaac about 37 years old, okay? This is just kind of where we are here. Abraham will buy a field, and, and that field has a cave in it, and he will lay his wife to rest in this cave. And this cave actually becomes the burial cave for Abraham's family. So, Abraham will be buried there years later when he dies. His son Isaac and his wife Rebekah will be laid to rest there. His grandson Jacob and his wife Leah will be laid to rest in this cave as well. It becomes quite a significant place even to this day. The cave is called the Cave of Macphelia, and you can actually visit this cave today. I didn't know if you knew that or not. And, and if you go there, let me just tell you, you will not feel like you're in a cave. All right. You will go see it. You'll go visit a cave, but nothing about the place feels like a cave. If you go there today, this is what you're going to see. This is where Abraham and his family was buried. Doesn't that look like a cave? No, it doesn't. It's my understanding that this is the second holiest site in Israel for a Jewish person. Now, what would be the first holy? Be the temple mount and the wailing wall, the well the temple area. But this is the second holiest site. Uh, You know, if you were to go visit the Holy Land today, there's no doubt that that your trip would include a a, a visit to the Garden Tomb. Been there myself, very special place. You're gonna see the Temple Wall. You're gonna see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You're gonna see many sites. You're gonna see the Sea of Galilee. You're gonna go to Bethlehem. You're gonna go all over the place. But this site right here, what has become known today as the Cave of the Patriarchs, it is the most ancient Jewish site in Israel. Now, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about it because I find this stuff interesting. And since I find it interesting, I just assume you'll find it interesting too. So uh, since I'm holding the microphone, I guess you're just gonna to have to endure it. Now, I'll tell you, first of all, I'm not gonna tell you that much about it, but I'm gonna encourage you to go research out. This is kind of a fascinating place. And the more I dig into it, the more I'm going, wow, I wish I'd have gone and seen this when I was over there. But this structure was built during the second temple period, which may not mean anything to you. Just know this, that King Herod built it over 2,000 years ago. And this is the only site, the only building that's that old, still standing, still functioning in its original state, serving the original purpose for why it was built. It was built over these caves as a memorial site to Abraham and his family. Now, you think about over 2,000 years old. This building was standing for 1,500 years, years just like this when Christopher Columbus sought out to seek out a new world. That's how old this building. I mean, this has been around a long time. And I don't know how many places you can go into the world and uh, say, yeah, I've been in a 2,000-year-old um, building before. But that's what you got with this. And uh, as you can tell, as you can probably assume, this is a very conflicted area. So this site has changed hands many times between Christians and Muslims and, you know, but it's fascinating history. The question for me is, are Abraham's bones still buried in the cave underneath this building? And I'm gonna tell you the answer. And the answer is, I don't know. Nobody knows, but I'm gonna let you kind of research out why they get to, there are many people believe that still down in those sealed off caves that nobody can get to are Abraham's bones and others think maybe they're not there. But you dig into that, the cave of the patriarchs. Fascinating investigation, I promise you. So Abraham buries his wife there and Isaac's in his, in his you know, late 30s and Abraham makes it a, a mission of his after his wife dies to find Isaac, His own wife. And we're not going to read it too much together today, but it's the 24th chapter of Genesis. I believe it is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, and it's this whole thing that Abraham goes through to find his son a wife. He calls up his his most trusted servant and he says, You got to do something for me. My son needs a wife, and I'm going to send you back to my homeland. I don't want you to find a wife from anywhere around here, but I want you to go back to my people. God's going to direct you, and 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 you, you get the right woman for my son. You talk about pressure. That is pressure to go find somebody, a wife. And so this servant goes, okay. And and if you read the account, this servant is like praying, Lord, please show me, I need your help. Show me who this person is supposed to be. And you're going to discover when you read this, it was like literally God ordained appointment that he led this servant to a woman named Rebecca. And he tells her, and it just becomes so clear, you're supposed to come back with me and, and marry my boss's daughter, okay? That was the, that, or my boss's son. That, that is the story. And, and it's not like he just took her and said, you're coming with me. No, he, he goes home and, and, and he gives her some jewelry, which, you know, always moves the conversation along and, 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 and does, and, and, and he goes and meets her family. All right. And, and he tells her all, tells the whole family all about Abraham and what God is doing and how he came to their area and how he found Rebecca and, and he wants her to, to, to come with him. And, and the family looks at Rebecca and says, do you want to go with this man? And Rebecca's like, yes, I do. And, and, and the next morning she hops on his camel and she rides off. And some of you are like, that's exactly how I got married. <laughs> Some guy rolled in on his Harley, and I jumped on the back, and off we went. A little close to home. Some of you are like, yep, that was me. Rebecca comes back with Abraham's servant. He, she meets Isaac. Isaac falls head over heels for her. They get married quick. And then the well, next thing we know, they're married for 20 years, and it seems like all is good. You know, we don't have a whole lot of details about those first 20 years of their marriage, except for this. And I would say, um, it's interesting how life sometimes repeats itself. Life sometimes it revolves in circular motion, right? Things come around and happen. Rebecca and her husband Isaac are dealing with the exact same issue that Abraham and Sarah were dealing with years earlier they couldn't have any babies. Mary, Abraham, and Sarah, they couldn't conceive, and it wasn't until she was 90 years old that she had Isaac. 21 or 20 years into this marriage Isaac and Rebecca they can't they can't have a baby either and this just like with Sarah and Abraham was greatly distressing to them. And if you look at chapter 25 verse 21 here's what happens. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. 20 years nothing happens. But then Isaac goes to God and what he's doing, he's interceding on behalf of his wife. This is very similar to what you might remember Abraham did when he interceded to God on behalf of the residents of Sodom. Lord, if you can find just 10 people, would you spare the whole city? Maybe a little bit like father, like son. He goes to the Lord, he intercedes on behalf of his wife and guess what happens? She gets pregnant and wouldn't you know it? It's like a double blessing. She's got twins growing inside of her And from the get-go of this pregnancy, Rebecca knew something was off. There was just something not quite right about what was happening inside of her. Look at verse 22. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? Okay, now I'm just gonna analyze this statement. Um, She's never been pregnant before, and then she gets pregnant, and she knows something's weird. I would imagine she's, she's, um, she's talked to all of her girlfriends about their pregnancies and they're all like, yeah, that's weird. The, the Bible says they jostled. What does that mean exactly? I think what we'll come to learn is that these brothers were even in the womb. They were fighting. They're jostling, they're, they're wild, something here, and she even knew, never being prayed for. Something's different about what's happening inside of me. So much so, here's what she did. She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her Now, catch this two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And I wonder what was going through Rebecca's mind when she got that answer. Uh, Misha, I just thought they were a little hyperactive. I wasn't expecting all this. Two nations. The Lord tells her four facts about her pregnancy. She's going to bear twins who would each be ancestors of great nations. Now we know one of those babies is gonna be Jacob. And Jacob is going to be in the line of building the Israelites, or the Jewish people. The other boy is named Esau, and he is going to also be the, you know, the ancestor or the forefather of another nation that'll be known as the Edomites. We'll get to that in just a second. Two separate, two distinct people are gonna emerge from Her. One of these people is gonna exceed in strength. So in other words, one nation is gonna be much stronger than the other. And then this little detail. The older brother is going to serve the younger brother. And this would be a flip-flop of society norms. The older brother leads. No, no, no. The younger brother is gonna lead the older brother. And it's hard to know exactly what Rebecca knew or what she was thinking at this moment. All we can do is deduce some information. She's been a part of Abraham's family line now for 20 years, being married to Abraham's son. You know she's heard some stuff. She's heard about how, how God spoke and called Abraham to leave his country. She's heard probably about how they went to Egypt when they were afraid and, and passed off Sarah as Abraham's wife. They came back after getting kicked out of Egypt. That's how Hagar probably showed up. She's heard, probably heard the stories about how Abraham and Sarah got impatient with God and, and, and Abraham went to be with Sarah's maidservant, and that's how Ishmael was born, and all the drama that came from that. She's heard about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. No doubt she's heard the story. Maybe Isaac, it started out like this. Hey, honey, did I ever tell you about the time my father and I went on a little father-son three-day trip out? Did I ever tell you what happened there? I almost died. She's heard some stuff. I, I know it. So this news about having two nations inside of her womb and the, the, the older is going to serve the younger. I, um, I wonder maybe in the back of her mind goes, well, this is Abraham's family. <laughs> or did she see this as part of God's bigger vision that no doubt she's heard about? I, it's hard to say. But over the next few chapters in the Bible, we're gonna see clearly that this struggle that is happening inside of her womb between these two brothers is just a foretaste of what is to come once they grow up. Now look at verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. That's quite a visual, isn't it? I love how the Bible kind of really helps us be in the moment, you know, be in that delivery room, if you will, and, and see what they see as a first impression. So Esau comes out first, and they observe that he is red and hairy. They got a Chewbacca on their hands, okay? He's red and hairy, he's all over. And so they named him Esau, which means Harry. And then Jacob comes out next, and the interesting thing they observed is Jacob had his hand around Esau's heel, and so they named him Jacob, which as best we can tell means heel grabber or, or one who grasped the heel, okay? So you got Chewbacca and heel grabber. That's, uh, that's who's born here. But it's all based on their first impression of these boys. Kind of reminds me of... Um, of the little Native American boy that I heard about one time who was researching his family's history. And he went to his, his father who was the, the leader of his tribe and he said, Father, why did you give me and my brothers the names that you did? And, and this father thought about it and he goes, well, son, when your oldest brother was born, I walked outside, the first thing I see is an eagle flying through the air, so I named him Flying Eagle. And then when your other brother was born, I stepped outside, first thing I see is a bear running through the woods. I, so I named him Running Bear. And the boy thought for a minute, and he goes, huh. And his dad goes, question for you. Why are you so curious, pooping dog? You know, <laughs> is that not the dumbest thing you're gonna hear today? That's dumb. I practiced that on my boys last night. And they swear I've told that joke to the church before. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't. I actually did a search through my entire documents on my computer for pooping dog because I thought it might flag a document that I, and I couldn't find it. And I said, no, and if I can't remember ever telling it, they're not gonna remember that I ever told it. So I told it and they, and they encouraged me to tell it anyway. So anyway, that will be the dumbest thing you will, you will hear all day. And Jacob and Esau, they get their names Based off the first impression of when they entered the world. Harry and Heel Grabber. Look at verse 27. The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, um, he loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So basically this tells us that these boys, these brothers could not have been any more different in all the world. You've got Esau who's rugged, he's a man's man, he likes to be outdoors, hunt and fish, he's that kind of guy, and Isaac was drawn to Esau. Jacob, we kind of get this impression that he's a homebody. He likes to maybe hang around the kitchen, maybe learn a few recipes. And boy, Rebecca loved that. And so you have even some parental loyalties that kind of shift a little bit to, to each son. It's important to note here at this part of Genesis, there is a transition that we make in the story of what God is doing. We didn't cover this, but earlier in the chapter, Abraham will pass away. He is still alive when Jacob and Esau are born, but he is gone before any of their story really heats up. Abraham's story comes to an end. We're gonna learn a little bit more about um, Isaac and Rebekah. Their story's not over, but really what's happening here is the spotlight is moving away from Abraham. It's passing over Isaac and Rebekah And now for the next 11, 12 chapters, it's solely going to be on what God is doing through Jacob's life and how God is going to continue to build this new nation of people through Jacob. And that's an important thing for you to note here, that the the, the transition here from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob is happening through these, these chapters. And like I said, we're not done with Isaac, but it is shifting to Jacob and he will dominate the next 10 or 12 chapters or so. What happens next in the story if you've never read it before? It will make you stop for just a minute and wonder if this is the place where God's plan comes crashing down. Because you're gonna take a look at Jacob and we're gonna learn a lot more about him in the next coming weeks and you're gonna see that he is a manipulator with con man tendencies and you're gonna go, why him? In fact, I'm just gonna tell you, You're not going to like Jacob today. You're definitely not going to like him in the next two weeks. You're really not going to like him towards the end of his life. But when we get to the end of his life, you're going to begin to connect the dot of what God is doing in his grand scheme of things. And I believe you're going to go, okay, I get it now. We're not there yet, but I'm just letting you know, if you have feelings like, I hope Jacob dies. Um, It's warranted. Okay. It's warranted. All right. You're going to see what I mean here in just a moment. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, remember he liked to hang around the kitchen with his mom. Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he is also called Edom. Now, something about um, Esau he was red when he was born something about this stew was red and something with the word Edom is red he would be the father of the Edomites something about this red color follows follows Esau and that's kind of all we know and that's that little note there you know that is why he's also called Edom it has something to do with red Jacob replied first sell me your birthright look i'm about to die Esau said what good is a birthright to me but Jacob said swear to me first so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. So that's not like, oh yeah, sure, just take it. It's like, okay, I swear an oath, it's binding. It's, this, is, this is a legal transaction. So he swore to him at selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And then it says, so Esau despised his birthright. Now that word despised just means that he discarded it. Like, um, like he tossed it aside, like, like gave it away for nothing. That's what despised means. So this right here is the first indication in Scripture that we have of tension or something's not well between these brothers. We, we knew about the prophecy when, his, when their mother was pregnant, but here we have an actual example. These boys probably don't like each other much. They're, they're at odds. And, and we see this because Esau comes in from hunting and doing his manly stuff, he comes home and what's he smell? Oh man, that's, that soup smells good. And, and he believes he's about to die, okay? He's like, I am, I'm famished, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna give you a little insight into some of the communication strategies that my wife and I have employed over our 22 years of marriage. Um, sometimes I'll say, honey, I'm hungry. And she might say something like, how hungry? And I'm really hungry. Well, I mean, I'm going to do something lighter, uh, a meal. And I'll say to her when I really need to communicate how I feel, I'm Esau hungry. I'm about to die. And she knows, she knows it's time to get going. You know, we got to do something. and, And that's, so when I become Esau hungry, this is what I'm talking about. I'm about to die. Now, was he, was he about to die? No, he was not about, he was not knocking on death's door. He's walking, he's talking, he's not at death's door. But, but this might, right here, give a little bit of a, a window opening into Esau's psychological state, where he is mentally. You, you might even say that his actions here, like, give me food right now, I don't care what it costs, I want what I want right now, may, may really just point to the picture that, Esau is a here and now kind of guy. Live in the moment, doesn't think about the future. Just what makes me feel good right now? He might be the very first example that we come across in scripture of what we would call instant gratification. This is Esau. I want what I want. I want it now. Don't deprive me. Don't care what it costs. Give me, give me, give me. Now, this also shows you a little bit about his his, uh, conniving little brother, Jacob, And what does he say when he sees his brother in such dire hunger? He says, Oh, no, it's a good thing you came to my tent. I got food. Here, eat, replenish yourself. No, that's not what Jacob says. He says, First, I want something from you. I don't know exactly how this conversation went down. Maybe Esau's like, Anything. What do you want? I want your birthright. Give me that. This is blackmail, this is manipulation at its finest. And what you're gonna see in the the next couple of of weeks is that this manipulative con man mentality will be the go to characteristics of of, of Jacob's journey moving forward for a few years. Like I said, you're not gonna like him very much. But he says, Sell me your birthright. Let me ask you what in the world is a birthright and why is this so valuable? What's the big deal about this thing? The birthright was reserved for the firstborn son of every family, it was a big deal. And even though Esau was a twin, he still was born first. Even if it was just by seconds, he was born first. So he got the birthright. And the birthright meant this, that you get a double portion of the family inheritance when your father dies. So there'd be two sons. So what that gave to Esau would be two thirds of Isaac's wealth and Jacob would get one third. He would also become the head of the family. It's a very big deal. But even more important than all of that, the birthright of the oldest son, what he received at the end of his father's life was the family blessing. And these family blessings are a big deal. It was bestowed upon the oldest son only. And it was almost prophetic. And many of these blessings would speak about future events of what is to come. It was a very, very, very big deal. And you might be wondering, that seems like a really big thing to give up for a bowl of soup. Especially when you think about what it what it cost and what he was willing to sacrifice for it. But that's what happened. Esau gave up his inheritance. He gave up his future for a bowl of soup. You know, when I read about what Esau was willing to give up for a bowl of soup, I can't help but think about the similarity in what people are willing to give up today for something that won't last. Esau reminds me of the guy who satisfies his physical needs without any concern for his soul. Esau is like the guy who places more value on immediate gratification of his physical appetites than he does on long range spiritual blessings that are his by right of God. Esau sold something of great value for something that was quite. Temporary, And it's hard to fathom how somebody could make such a foolish bargain. Yet, I would say people do it thousands of times every day in this world. We indulge in things that are temporary. We go after worldly and ungodly pursuits. And when we do that, we are, in effect, despising our own birthright that Jesus paid for when he went to the cross. So, so Jacob blackmails his brother but I'm going to tell you, Esau's heart and his head, they are all so far away from God at this point that, that it kind of makes you wonder, you know, uh, what is really going on here? Now, the reason I say that is, uh, is, is found in Genesis 26. Jump forward one chapter, scroll all the way down to verse 34. 26, verse 34. We get a little more insight into Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Bere the Hittite, and also Basmeth, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Why are these two wives a source of grief for Esau's mom and dad? Well, obviously, besides the fact that he took two wives, which was never God's plan, we've seen examples of that, it was never God's plan, it's another sermon, but certainly there, but, But the reason why his choice in wives were so disparaging to his parents is simply because Esau chose to marry local girls. He married Canaanites, or in the land of Canaan. These women were a part of the local pagan community. And do you remember what great lengths Abraham went to to find a wife for his son? He was like, I don't want you to marry a local girl. You go back to my family. Abraham knew that at this point in their family, if they start intermarrying their children with pagans, it's gonna derail what God is doing. If you fast forward the story in a number of hundreds of years, the Israelites will be free from slavery in Egypt. They're gonna come back to this land that God had promised Abraham, and they're gonna drive out all the pagans in the land. The Canaanites are gonna get drunk. And, and, and even early on, I think Isaac and Rebecca had an understanding, we're nomadic people. These are not our people. This is not part of God's plan. And it significantly grieved their parents that Esau would choose, in his essence, non-believers to be wives. And and honestly, um, that's really, what we're talking about here is is a different sermon series about dating and marriage and the future together. And we'll do a series like that sometime in the future. But what you need to take away right here is Esau is doing what makes Esau feel good. Esau is doing what Esau wants. So he sells off his birthright because he's hungry. He could care less about his parents' wishes or God's plan for his family. He wants these two women and he takes it. And so by age 40, I think it's safe to say that Esau is a long way removed from trying to do anything that is holy or godly. And then when you fast forward the story even more, Isaac becomes an old man. He loses his sight, okay? And now it's like, I don't know how long I'm gonna live. And now it's time to pass on blessing. And this is where things get really complicated. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and I don't know how the day of my death... Now then, get your equipment, your quiver, your bow, and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. And you might go, oh, what a nice tender moment between father and son. And maybe it started out that way, (laughs) it's not gonna end that way. If you read the rest of the account, Rebecca, who is Isaac's wife, she finds out what what her husband is about to do and is about to give away the blessing, which is a huge deal to Esau. And and she goes into manipulation mode. And you go, where did Jacob learn all this manipulation? Maybe it was from mommy dearest, I don't know. But she's like, we can't have this. And so read through the account, she dresses Jacob up. She cooks, you know, favorite food of Isaac. She dresses uh, Jacob up in, in all this... Animal hair and she goes in to fool um, her husband. And I'm going, he put on animal hair? How hairy was his brother? That it would take animal hair to confuse his blind father. Isn't this just a messed up thing going on? But it works. Isaac doesn't know the difference between Jacob and Esau, and because he feels like Esau, doesn't really sound like Esau, but feels and smells, and he's got the food, and and so Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. Now I could tell you that this whole thing should have never happened. I mean, all of this is messed up. We all must agree to that. But let me just tell you, um, I've got to believe that, that Isaac knew all about God's prophecy about how the how the older brother is going to serve the younger. Something should have registered that I'm not doing it God's way. Not only that, Esau is so far off the, the radar as far as anything godly, why would Isaac still want to push forward the family inheritance and the blessing on to Esau? There's a lot of things messed up. And maybe you could argue that Rebecca was like, well, we got we to gotta fix this. We got to get it back on track with God. It's hard to say, but it's messed up. As you can imagine, Esau gets back from hunting and cooking and he's bringing in the tray of food for his dad and dad, I'm ready, I'm ready for your blessing only to discover it's it's too late. That blessing has already been given and once it's been given, there's no unringing that bell. It's done. Now look at chapter 27, verse 34. When Esau heard his father's words, in other words, sorry, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. But Esau's out. It's too late. The blessing for the inheritance has already been given and he missed it. And it's at this moment that Esau comes face to face with his monumental folly that he committed when he despised his birthright and just sold it off for some some temporary, instant gratification. He lost out on his inheritance. And friends, there is a parallel with today's world. Esau is a picture of those who reject Christ and have to suffer the consequences of that rejection. Now think about it like this. Esau had been given a birthright, all the privileges that come with it, and he traded it away. And, and we saw that he forfeited it for something that was instant and temporary and pleasureful. He gave it up for immediate gratification. He gave it up, all these long-term blessings for things that were so very short-term. And every human on earth is tempted to do the exact same thing with their soul and their inheritance You know, every person on earth, you, me, everybody, was born from the seed of Adam. And we've learned all about that in the opening pages of Genesis. And what that means is that every single one of us on this planet is under the curse of sin and death. But we also know the good news, that God sent his son to bring new birth, allowing every single person who chooses to to be born again into God's family. And when we are, we immediately receive the full blessings and the birthright that the father has in store for us through his son. This includes eternal life and freedom from the curse of death. That is our birthright, that is our future inheritance. And we get that by our father when we are born again into God's family. But this birthright that I'm talking about can only be passed on to those who are in the family of God, who have been born again of faith in Jesus Christ. It is absolutely entirely possible for people today, and it happens millions of times a day, to treat their birthright with contempt and trade this most valuable treasure from God for something that is temporary. Now, when, when our lost world, when they are doing this, are they making that connection that we are trading away our inheritance for something of this world? Of course not. They don't put those pieces together. But it is indeed, in fact, exactly what is happening in this world every single day all around us. Despising what God is rightfully making available to them for something very temporary in this world. You, know, you fast forward into the New Testament, speaks very clearly about this reality. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 is one of those places. It says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. Let me be very clear. He's not talking about loving the environment or the oceans or the animals or save the whales. No, that, that doesn't even apply here. He's talking about worldliness, the things of this world that are unholy, that are ungodly, the things that, that attach us. You remember when, when, when Lot's wife, she had a hard time leaving Sodom because she was so drawn to what was there and, and, and we should not be so attached to the things of the world that we would miss out on, on our reward. And that's the whole point. Do not love the things of this world that's gonna keep you from God. Things like the love of money and possessions. Big, big deals in keeping people from God. We love that more than God. We won't give it up or sexual gratification outside of the bonds of marriage. We pursue a worldly behavior. That's what he means, do not love the world or anything in the world. Then he says, if anyone loves the world, in other words, let's just say ungodliness, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and you could argue all sins fall into these three big headings. They come not from the father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You know, when Esau found out that he missed his father's blessing and there was no one doing it, he was devastated. And he begged his father, after it was too late, he begged his dad, bless me too, but he did not get the blessing that he wanted. And let me just tell you this, friends. If you do nothing else with your life, Make sure you don't miss out on the birthright of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is the the most important thing that there is. You know, in our Genesis study so far, I have tried to point out all the different times when there are what I call callbacks to Genesis. In other words, things happen in the book of Genesis like creation and, and Jesus talks about it. Noah, Jesus talks about it. The flood, the the apostles talk about it. Sodom and Gomorrah, it's talked about all over the rest of the scriptures. Try to point those out to you. This situation with Esau is talked about other places in the Bible. And it's used as an example of how not to be. Don't be like Esau. The one example I'm thinking about I want to share with you this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews has something to tell the church about Esau. Here's what it says, verse 14. He says to the church, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. That's the word he uses. Holy just means set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from worldliness. You are born again. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are not a resident of this world. The Bible says you are an alien. You are a stranger because your permanent residency is in heaven with your inheritance and your reward. So be a, don't be a part of this world and it's ungodly worldly systems. Be a part of the godly system. That's holy. I'm not a part of this that's dying. I'm a part that's living with my God. So make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. I'm on God's team. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, to, see that no one is sexually immoral or, listen to the next part, or is godless like Esau. So right now, the writer of Hebrews is like, I'm gonna take you back to Genesis 25. And I'm gonna tell you something about a godless man named Esau. So he says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. So among the church, among Christians, purity. Or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son. He gave up something of great value for something stupid. Afterward, as you know, he, when, he went, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. And you know, perhaps some of us in this room... You really need to come to your senses before it's too late. You're flirting around with your God given birthright, and you may discover one day, when it's too late, that you sold off, you despised your birthright, you traded it off for something instant gratification, something of this world that will not last, and you're going to be on the outs. It'll be too late. And the blessing for you, this eternal life with God in heaven, it will no longer be available. And you will be just like Esau there in front of his father when he too realized he missed out on his inheritance. And he cried out, and I'm going to add a couple of words from me, not scripture, this is me. He cried out with weeping and gnashing of teeth because he missed out on his father's blessing and he couldn't do a thing about it. Friends, I'm gonna tell you, it's time to stop playing church and it's time to be the church. It's too much at stake. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Dear God, I just, as always, I wanna thank you for your holy word. I wanna thank you, Lord, that you have painted for us a picture of what you are like and what you want that's easy to follow it's easy to understand what you would desire of us to live holy lives to make you number 1 and lord at the same time i thank you so much for your grace because we all need it we're all sinners even to this day we mess up and sin but i'm just going to thank you lord that your grace in son jesus christ and if we have accepted you by faith your grace is there Lord, I thank you that you don't use perfect people because they don't exist. And we see example after example so far in our study of Genesis. But Lord, you exist and you are real and you've got a plan. And Lord, we wanna be in that plan. And I thank you, God, that you have brought us into it, that you have brought us into your family and you have bestowed upon each and every one of us the birthright that gains us access to the inheritance. Lord, help us not despise it. Lord, help us not to discard it for something silly and temporary and broken. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we may have new life in you. We will forever be grateful, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.